I wanted to do a message this morning called uh, Time for Change, kind of in, a, in, in between some series, and it gives me a chance to just do some things that have been on my heart and um, things that are important to me spiritually, things I'm growing and learning in. And uh, so I wanted to um, just challenge you with some basic scriptural truth this morning. I think the first part of the message, um, you're going to just gravitate right to and go, wow, that's true, that's good, that's good stuff, I like that. Um, but everything changes and uh, dramatically. Brother Robert's up teaching uh, children's church right now, but he tells the story um, sometimes when I'm taking him around places. Uh, he just reminds me that when his parents were born, um, there were only 45 states. And uh, so they, they would have had a flag with 45 stars. That was a long time ago. Things have changed dramatically since then. I remember when our kids were small and uh, little bitty, uh, we had our firstborn son. And I remember when we got our very first microwave and we didn't have to heat bottles in the sto- on the stove anymore in the warm water. And in the middle of the night when you needed that bottle, you could just go punch those buttons, go beep, beep, beep and just close the door and watch it do all its cool stuff and then take it. I thought that was the awesomest thing in the world. Of course, we, you know, blew up a few bowls and destroyed some eggs and all kinds of other stuff with it. But, but we were learning how to use the microwave. Now, everything, you know, there are microwaves everywhere. And uh, you go to the convenience store, and they're in the convenience store. Things change. Uh, when I was first teaching, my very first year to teach, oh, this is, i got to just mention this real quick. The pastor that spoke a few weeks ago the guest speaker we had was Joe McKeever. And Pastor Joe is somebody I met um, through his blogs online. He writes um, very, very well. He has a, a website, and he writes for pastors. He's, a tw- he's 20 years older than me, 22, 23 years older than me. And I love his, uh, his website. It's, it's ministered to me for a number of years. I just found it accidentally one time looking for some uh, message information, and, and I found him. And and so I just follow him. I hardly ever comment on anything. I just read a ton of his stuff. And, and, of course, he's a cartoonist. Some of you saw him drawing, and he's a cartoonist. So he's got a lot of humor, a lot of stuff he does. And I really enjoy that. Well, we had him when, uh, when Mark, our, uh, Mark Wadier, our chairman of the board, wanted to do a, a training session for the board. He said, who could we get to do that? And I said, I just don't know anybody from my venues in Birmingham that's free to come down and do that or available or, or kind of the right fit for us. I said, there's this one guy I like online. It's Joe McKeever. And uh, I said, look him up if you like him and see what you do. And, I mean, within like three days, Mark had booked him and set the dates and all that. And I was like, wow, hope that works out okay because I just know him through the online deal. Well, you remember he's a silver-haired guy, just great teacher. He taught real well in the pulpit. He did a great job with our pastors and or with our uh, board members and, and uh, leading and training us. And uh, so I drove down a few weeks ago to New Orleans just to talk to him. I've got a meeting coming up. It's actually tonight. You'll be praying about that for me. I've got a very important meeting to be in. And I needed some wisdom and counsel for that. And so I went to him. He's 20 years older than me. Been in a lot of churches, done a lot of things. And so I just kind of was drawing information from him. Then we went to lunch together, and we're talking. And, uh, and just kind of catching up with each other. I said, you know, you were in Birmingham, right, just, you know, 10 years, 12 years ahead of me. And I said, you, you know, do you remember this? And you remember that? And yeah, and you went to, you didn't go to Sanford. You went to Birmingham Southern. And where did you live? We lived in West End. I said, well, we used to live in, we lived in the West End part of town. And, and uh, yeah, the little, you know, it's a little dangerous part and a little not dangerous part and another dangerous part. And I said, yeah, we lived right in the middle of all that, with, just right where he was. And uh, we started comparing notes. And, and eventually he said, well, my brother was the pastor of Woodlawn Baptist Church. And I, I was eating at the time. Uh, fried catfish, if anybody's wondering. And, uh, but I was eating catfish with him. And, and I just stopped right in the middle and stared at him. 
and it clicked in my head what his last name. And I said, your brother is Ronnie McKeever. He looked at me and he goes, how'd you know his name? I said, my wife's first job teaching a little Christian school and my first job teaching a little Christian school. When I got out of Bible college, I couldn't get into I had a part-time ministry at a, at a uh, church called Trinity Baptist Church. I was their youth pastor, and they were paying me part-time. And they had a little Christian school they couldn't afford, and they were selling it to Woodlawn Baptist Church. And, and that first year, it was called Trinity Woodlawn Baptist Church, or Christian School. And my wife had hired on as a school teacher at, the, at Trinity but then when it sold, she became a you know, teacher at, at Woodlawn. Well, when she went for the interview and they got to know her, they called me in and said, hey, we're trying really hard to have an 8th grade. We have a 7th grade. We need an 8th grade. There's like 8 students. We need somebody to teach that 8th grade. You don't have a job full-time. Would you do that for us? And so for like $9,000 for the whole year, I learned how to be an 8th grade teacher. It was a terribly miserable, hard thing for me to learn. But I figured it all out. And, my wife did all my bulletin boards and grades and everything for me. So, but here's the crazy part. The guy that spoke in this pulpit, I worked for his brother 20, 35 years ago. I worked for his brother. We were in the same church together. That's just, who could ever bring all those dots together? Well, in that first year of teaching eighth grade, um, technology was booming back then. In the, what was that, the early 80s? And uh, so our little tiny Christian school had to teach computer, and nobody there had a clue. And so I said, well, look, if you all get me the one you want to learn on, I will sit down and figure it out. And so my first year as an eighth grade teacher, one of the subjects that you could take in the seventh or eighth grade was computer class, and we had six computers. They were TI-99s. They looked just like this. They were TI-99s, and uh, you had to have a cassette player. That was your memory card. Anybody remember this? You had a cassette player. That was your memory card. And you had to have a television. You hook it up to your television. And you had to. And, and there was all these instructions. Turn on the television first so it warms up. Okay? Then you turn on your cassette player. Then you turn on the computer. And then you... And, and the cassette player, you know, would have to record all this stuff you're trying to type in on it. And you literally had to write your software and programs on this stuff. And uh, so I had, and that's the exact book I taught out of right there. It's crazy. When I found this online, I was like, oh my gosh, somebody took a picture of our classroom. But I sat, I, I sat with six students and taught them how to make little spaceships on their computer and how to make them blast off and stuff. And uh, just writing a little software. TI-99. Now there's a TI-99-4A. That was the color version. We didn't want to get into that because that was never going to be a hit. So nobody wanted color computers back then. So we just did, our, ours was the black screen with the green lettering. It's all I'd ever had. But that was, that was my introduction to computers. And uh, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. I got to bring one home, you know, because I was learning how to do it. So I brought one to our little house, and, and we lived in Inslee at the time, and, or Lipscomb. And I brought one home and hooked it up to our television, you know, and I had my own computer, you know, that could do nothing like anything today. Today, the worst cell phone in this building will run circles around that thing. I mean, absolute circles around it. You see how far we've gone? Now, I taught that computer, but today, the, the worst cell phone in this building will run circles around that thing. It'll do 10 times more than what that would ever do. Um, this thing had a hard time being a good calculator, really. It really did. Struggled with that. So, but I'm just trying to help you understand, things change, and they're going to continue to change. Um, I, I remember uh, reading a cartoon a long time ago when we were, I was teaching 
uh, in Birmingham, I was teaching the senior citizens how to get along with the younger crowd. The younger crowd wanted to do some more contemporary music, kind of like we do a blended service. They wanted to do that, and the senior crowd wanted to stick with just hymns and organs and all that. And, the, and there was this big controversy at our church, and the, the, the pastor, pastoral staff said, you need to fix that. And I'm like, really? That's a big task to get in the middle in between those two groups. I remember talking with the seniors about how they just don't like change. They don't want things to change. Can we just leave it the same? And I said, now, here's what I know one day is going to happen to me. One day I'm going to get old. I'm going to be 70, 80 years old, sitting out in a service, listening to some guy preach. There's going to be a guy up here leading music, and he's going to be leading whatever songs are you know, working at that time. And I'm going to lean over to my wife, and I'm going to say, I just wish we could sing Shout to the Lord one more time like we used to, <laughs> you know, because that's my generation of music. You know, I just wish we could sing God of Angel Armies, you know, and the group up here is going to be like, man, that song is so old and dumb, you know, good grief, how, that's just outdated. But for, for me, I know what, what was my generation and what's the strong songs of my time. I know what the seniors were liking at the time, and I know what the young people. And you have to blend those, and I, I really believe in that, and you, that's why you see us do that. That's why we sing songs like Burdens Are Lifted at Calvary, and, and uh, next we've got a couple of good hymns plugged in the service for next week. But it's why we sing the mixture, because change is important, but you also got to honor some of the things from the past. Well, Ecclesiastes says to everything there is a season, everything. And, and the, the picture that, that Solomon has in Ecclesiastes is that is there's times for war and times for peace and times for famine and times for wealth. And there's, there's just seasons of things that happen. And, and Solomon in his wisdom could see these sine waves that are, going, that are, that are all through our lives. Um, but I want you to know we're called by God to change. So we shouldn't be resistant to change. And I'm going to give you some Bible verses that you think are, that you'll, you'll know very well. We'll go to Colossians to begin with. Colossians chapter 3. We're called by God to change, and He expects us to change. When Paul writes to the Colossians, he's just helping them with a... This is a beautiful passage in... I had it there a second. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. When Paul writes to the Colossians, the first part of the letter is doctrinal. He's defining and declaring the doctrines of, of grace and the doctrines of justification and the doctrines of what Christ has done for them and how we're saved and what that means. When he gets to chapter 3, he shifts it into the practical and says, now that you get all that, um, now that you understand all these things, things have to be different for you. And this is what he says um, in chapter 3, verse 1. If you just follow along, he says, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated. He's saying, if you're saved, and, and it's an, the class of condition that is, is if you are and I know you are. He's saying in some, some translations actually right in there since you're saved. Since you're saved, keep seeking things above. Keep turning your heart and your affections above. And you've heard me teach on this before. But skip down to verse 5. He says um, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to and here's our list. Immorality impurity, passions evil desires, greed, which amounts to idolatry, for it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them, verse 7, this is the verse I'd love for you to underline in your Bible, in them to the Colossian church, he says, you also once walked when you were living in them. Verse 8, beautiful verse. But now you also put them all aside, and then he lists them, put aside anger, 
wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie one to another as you laid aside the old self and its evil practices. You once walked this way, put it all aside and walk this way. They're supposed to be, expected to be, Paul's telling the Colossians, you should change. You need to change. And once you walk like this, but now you don't walk that way anymore. So make some changes in your life. Your Christian life is supposed to change some things. And this is just a... There's a, there's a whole number of passages where Paul just goes to a list of sinful things. And he did it in the uh, verse 5 and 6. Uh, immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, greed, and idolatry. And then he, then he jumps right back in and he says anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech. That's how your former life before you knew Christ was. This is how your new life in Christ is supposed to be. In verse 10... He says, you have put on the new self. Put on the new self. Now, I'll come back to that. But I want you to just see in verse 10 where he says, look, and and it's the the grammar in this passage, the literal Greek text is, is you put off like you take off a jacket. You put off the old things and you put on the new things. And the the word put off means take it off like you're never going to wear it again because it's so dirty. I've gotten clothes so stained with working on cars before I laid in a puddle of used transmission fluid one time when I was working on my my car that the transmission oil had leaked out and was puddled under my back while I was having to work and you couldn't really change anything because I'm holding the transmission up trying to get it in place and then get the bolts in place and all this is leaked down and and literally soaked through. I was wearing two or three layers because it was freezing outside and uh, it was back when we were first married. And, and I just remember those clothes. I tried so Those were some of my favorite work clothes. You know, I have favorite work clothes. Like, these are really good work clothes. They're dirty, you know, kind of stained, but they're very comfortable, and they're very good work clothes. Used transmission fluid has a smell that will not come out. I, I put them in buckets out back. I put all kinds of chemicals in there with them, thinking that'll, that'll knock it right out. Never did. Every time you take that out and let it dry, you smell it. You go, oh, it smells just like the inside of a transmission. That's a bad smell. Well, Eventually, I had to discard those clothes. You go, you're never going to put that back on again. That's exactly what Paul's talking about here. Put off these things. Put on the other things. Put on the new self. And then he explains what that's like. And he actually goes on to say, um, it's, it's when you bear with one another, for verse 13, forgive one another. Um, you put on a heart, verse 12, put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness. That's the new clothing. He says, that's your thing to do. Put off these things. Put on these things. Because you've changed. Now I want you to also go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 with me. Another real simple proof text. First part of the message here. I'm just trying to make an obvious point to you. I know you know this, but it helps to kind of tie some things together. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he kind of says the same thing to them. If you look in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse uh, 9, he says, "Is that yeah, that's it. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, here's the list, fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminates, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11. Here's the transitional verse. And such were some of you. 
That's your past. You used to be, and we'll go back down the list, you used to be fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminates, homosexuals, thieves, covetousness, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. That's what you used to be. Such were some of you, but here's something that happened to you. You were, and then he lists these three things, you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. That's a beautiful picture, a beautiful picture of what Christ's life in Christ is all about. I want to back up to the, I'm going to let you come back to this slide. Let's back up one slide, Josh. Just put that list back up for him. This is, this is, what, this is what the Apostle Paul says were, were the problems and the sins in people's lives before they met Christ. And the Corinthian church, which is clearly not a model church, by the way, if you read the book of Corinthians, but he says, even you have made changes. You used to be like this. Now... You're washed and sanctified. And he's trying to help them understand, don't, don't go back and live in the old way. And so he lists fornicators, those who practice sexual sins. He lists idolaters, people who worship things other than Jehovah God. You know, it doesn't have to necessarily be an idol. You always think of idolatry as, you know, worshiping some idol out in, the, uh, out in a foreign land, somewhere in a jungle or somewhere in the back country. But you can, you can worship money. You can worship success. You can worship power, um, control. You can worship, this, this is Satan's favorite thing to have you worship. You can worship you. You can make you the most important person in the world. And, and once you begin worshiping you and set yourself up as very uh, important, pride and selfishness dominate your life. And Satan wins that battle. But Paul says we once were idolaters. We're not idolaters anymore. Then he says um, effeminates, those who have... Uh, Sexual perversions, homosexuals, relationships with the same sex. And here's a clear verse, by the way, those of you that are uh, working on how to understand all that's going on in our culture and all that and why uh, strong, fundamental churches like ours would say, we love homosexual people. Um, I love drunk people. I love any sinful people. The sinner's not the problem. Their sin is what we will not be able to tolerate if they are not willing to change that. And we, though we would accept a homosexual, we will not accept their practices. We should never accept something that's sinful as an acceptable practice as Christians. And here's a verse where Paul says, you once were homosexuals, but once Christ came into your life, there was a change. I have several friends who are, uh, were homosexuals and really struggle with that. And, and they were Christians and homosexuals at the same time. And over the years of their life, wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with that, that conflict in their life, in their spiritual life, and eventually renounced their homosexual behavior and, and are following Christ now. But it is, it is a strong temptation and, and challenge for them, like other sins are for any of us. Paul doesn't leave anybody out. Thieves people who steal things, people who covet things, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. He just goes down the list and he says it doesn't matter what the sin is. By the way, these are, I call these, all these passages where Paul just writes this little grocery list out, these are open-ended. Paul's not saying this is the only sins that the Colossians had or the Corinthians had, um, but there's some big ones that I know. Just Paul's just thinking, you know, I spent 18 months with you guys. And I uh, led a bunch of you to Christ, and my friends led the rest of you to Christ. And we did a lot of praying and a lot of dealing with you and your families and your struggles. So I know the deal. You know, some of you are just drunkards. 
You know, you just get snockered every evening and you can't see straight or walk straight. And, you know, you're not helping yourself when you're that way. It's not, not a good plan. You used to be that way. You need to change that in your life. So um, this is the list of where the Corinthians were, like where the Colossians were. But then he goes to this little phrase. He says, and I'd like you to pick this up with me. Very important verse to mark in your, in your Bible if you'll write in your Bible. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed. <clears throat> You were sanctified and you were justified. How were they washed? They are washed by the Word of God. The Bible says the Word of God washes us. Matter of fact, one of the passages I didn't emphasize when we were in our relationship series is that the husbands are to take such a role in their home that they can literally, by bringing the Word and God's Word into the home, they can literally protect that home with cleanliness spiritually through the washing of the Word. It's what Christ does for us. When you wash something, you basically take a, a dirty piece of clothes, just think of a nice T-shirt that you've gotten stains all over, and instead of using a washing machine, just, just do the old-fashioned deal. Let's get a bucket. We put water in it. And if we've got soap, we put soap in there. And we just have to move that fabric in and out of that water. We have to agitate it in the water some. So the water goes through the fabric, back and forth, back and forth. And eventually good soap and good water, eventually it breaks those particles of, of dirt away from the fabric and separates them. That's what the Word of God does for us. But we have to move into the Word, and we have to let the Word move in and out of us. We have to take the Word in and think, dwell on the Word. We have to let the Word become the cleansing part of us. Um, and Jesus says in His high priestly prayer in John 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The word sanctify, same word used here on the second one, means to purify. Purify them. Make them as pure as we are. God, Christ praying to God, take all my followers that are true followers and purify them. Purify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus is saying, hey, get them in the word and wash them. Wash them. Now we have these fancy machines now. You, you, know, you go into your laundry room and throw stuff in there and press buttons and shut the lid. But you know what's happening inside there? It's a tub full of water, and there's an agitator that's, that's shaking the inside of that and making sure it's all stirred up, that the water gets to move across um, the fabric and that the, the water can push things in and out of that fabric. If your washing machine spinner in the middle doesn't work, never going to wash anything well. And Jesus has to get his word in us, and it has to churn us up sometimes. It has to get inside of us and make us change. So we're washed by the word. The Corinthians were sanctified, purified. And then my favorite is that we're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word means as if we'd never sinned. He literally traded ledgers. He gave you his ledger of sin. Jesus' ledger of sin is completely blank. There is no sin in Jesus' life. It's empty. I have a ledger of sin that looks like the New York phone book. Okay? It's just lots of little bitty print and pages and pages of it and three or four chapters, three or four books, volumes that go with it. My sins and Christ's sins are completely different. Lots of sin for me, no sin for him. The word justified means that he legally told God, I'll trade. I will take Stan's sins on me and I will give him my clean ledger so that he can stand justified as if he'd never sinned. He can stand before God justified. That's what it means to be justified. We stand before God as if we'd never, ever sinned. We're washed, we're sanctified, and we're justified. So Paul tells the Corinthians, you used to be like this, now you're like that. Um, 
he, he tells the Galatians, listen, listen to these words that he tells the Galatians. We're, you remember studying this with me, some of you. Um, we're going back to Galatians in a few weeks. <clears throat> but he, t- he tells the Galatians, he says, um, I was formerly one who persecuted churches. When he gives his testimony in chapter 1, he says, I used to persecute churches. Now I plant churches. Former life, but change. Paul's life changed. Um, he tells Timothy um, in, in 1 Timothy, he says, Formerly I was a blasphemer of the gospel. I would blaspheme the gospel. But now I'm a preacher of the gospel. Now he proclaims the gospel. He used to blaspheme and he changed. Um, he tells Timothy, I, am, I was formerly the chief of all sinners. But then he says, now I'm a servant. I'm a servant of the living God. Paul went through the same change he expects his followers to go through. And the point I want to make to you, the main point, or the point I want to make to you today to start with, as true Christ followers, change is inevitable and change is important. Everybody get that? That's not hard, is it? That's the simple part. Change is inevitable. It's going to happen anyway. And it's important. And there is a work that the Holy Spirit does in you the minute you're saved that makes you right before God and purifies you and makes all that spiritually correct. Change is inevitable and it's important. But the real point I want to make to you today, the main point I want to close with, is that as Christ followers... You're supposed to passionately pursue changes. You're not supposed to just let them happen to you. See, I, I, could, I can't change how computers work and, you know, that computers are going to get, you know, where my cell phone is just this magnificent computer when I used to have to have a TI-99 and cassette player and an old-fashioned television in front of me to make a computer. Okay, now I can just pull my cell phone out and I got 500 times the abilities that that thing ever would dream of having. Um, by the way, the TI-99 would never go online. So never had any, there was no reason to back then, but it would not, not hook up to anything outside of itself. Um, a lot of expansion ability when you read the... I started reading through some stuff last night on the, the sales ads on those things. It was very Bill Cosby used to sell those, by the way. Uh, I was reading some ads on it, and it was very funny about how they were promoting that it could really expand to many other things. And I'm like, really? Yeah, that cassette player made it very effective. So anyway... Um, but, but the truth is, my cell phone just is evidence that things are going to change. And who knows? There, there's a guy named Ray Kurzweil. You need to look him up sometime on Google. It'll just blow your mind. He says that in probably five years, maybe less, five years or less, the biggest computer that we can make, the most powerful computer we make, which we've, you know, we've reduced them down from room sizes to little bitty ones, the biggest computer we can make will fit in a blood cell. A blood cell. You can't even see a blood cell. He says, we're going to reduce computers, magnificently powerful computers. We're going to reduce them down to just a little blood cell. And he says that the electronics and the ability that we, we have now um, to make artificial limbs work like real limbs is going to get so good that in the future, 20 years from now, people are going to want surgery. They're going to want their good legs removed. Because you can give me legs that I can run. I'm, I'm 50 years old. You can give me some legs so I can run like a 20-year-old or I can run 40 miles an hour. If I have my legs amputated and you put those legs on me, and he's saying that cyborg thing, what is it, what is it in uh, Star Trek? Um, Star, uh, yeah. What is it Captain Picard becomes with the, a Borg? Those whole half-human, half... He's saying that's not far. And this guy's brilliant, by the way. Ray Kurzweil's brilliant. 
um, and his understanding of where the future goes and where electronics and technology is taking mankind and how mankind interacts with it. And he's saying all that's going to change. And I'm just reading this stuff, freaking out, going, ugh. You know, one day we'll be preaching a bunch of just computers out there. Y'all just, you know, sit there as computers and read all the data. It's just weird when you think through all that, right? So it's going to change. I don't know what our future is going to be. It's going to change dramatically, dramatically. It's inevitable. It's important. But most importantly, we're supposed to pursue spiritual changes in our lives. Do you know that? You're supposed to pursue them. The real simple one's Matthew 6.33. Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. So you're supposed to make an, an, an effort to change on your own part. It's supposed to be your work. Seek God first. The, the word in this passage, by the way, means keep on seeking. It's your effort. Um, now, is God seeking us? Absolutely. Does He make Himself available to us and manifest Himself to us? Absolutely. But is He telling us in His command, don't stop pursuing me, seek me, seek after me and pursue me, and it grammatically means keep on seeking me, regularly, daily, effectively, all the time, passionately seek me. And then I want to go to one passage as we close, Philippians chapter 2. This, one, this one's a very important passage, Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> I quoted you a little earlier today. Verse 10 and 11, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and those who are in heaven and on earth and under earth, that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And Paul says, verse 12, so then, my beloved, 2.12, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more by my absence, work out your own salvation Wait a minute, I thought the Lord had my salvation in hand. He does, completely taken care of. So why would Paul say to the Philippians, Hey, get after this. Work at your salvation. Because he knows we're supposed to work at our own maturity. Um, We're not just supposed to be passively receiving from God. We're supposed to be pursuing God and seeking changes that God wants in our lives. God, how would you like me to change this next year so I'd be more effective for you? God, what could I do differently in my own disciplines and character development that I'll be more effective for you this year than I was last year, this month than I was last month, this week, this next week than I was last week? What would help, God? Would it help if I become more thankful? By the way, our thankful book's right here, and you guys need to be filling out your praises and thanks in our thankful book. And it helps me. I'm learning so much uh, from that book I'm reading that, that when I become thankful, it helps me spiritually grow tremendously more than when I'm not thankful, when I'm not focused on thanking God for little bitty things. When I get focused on thanking God for little bitty things, my spiritual uh, in-tuneness with Him is phenomenal. So I'm supposed to seek God. I'm supposed to work out my own salvation. Now this word in the, in the original Greek language, when it says work out, means continuous sustainable, strenuous effort. Continuous, sustainable, strenuous effort. That's what it means. It's what long-distance runners figure out how to do. They have continuous, sustainable effort. And and, and they go long distances with with lots and lots of energy. Um, Strenuous energy. 
Long-distance runners have to figure out how to do that. You know, short sprinters and guys that play. You know, I played football. You know, we had to do sprints, and we'd run some laps and warm up, and then we'd exercise, and we'd, you know, do the drills and all. And then the coach would go, hey, let's run a couple laps, run some sprints, you know, and go in. And, uh, go, and, and then he'd call us over to the bench, and he'd say, hey, let's go over here and cool down. This is a cool down time. And when he said cool down, you know what, I, what it meant? It meant we got to take our helmets off, get to put our knee. He'd say, take a knee, and we'd take a knee. You know, and we'd put our helmet down, put our hand on it. And, he, and then some guy would come around from the bench, because we're cooling down. Some guy would come around from the bench with Gatorade. You know, and he'd give us cups of Gatorade, and you know, or we didn't have squirt bottles back then. He'd give us the cups of Gatorade, and we'd get to drink a little Gatorade and cool down while the coach had a little talk with us. That was awesome. My son Caleb ran cross country <clears throat> for a while with, uh, he ran with Cottage Hill and with Baker. And uh, I was fascinated by cross country. It never really interested me at all, especially after watching him run it. And I'll tell you why. Because they run, they, they warm up by running. He goes, all right, let's warm up a little bit. So we jog a little bit, and they jog a few laps and warm up. And then he goes, all right, now let's go real run. And like at Baker, and they're still doing this. You see them in our neighborhood all the time. The Baker cross-country team runs through my neighborhood. They run down the street to our neighborhood and run all through our neighborhood and come back out and and, uh, run back to the school. And I guess it's two or three miles they run, two, three, four miles. You know, they're just trugging away, trugging away, trugging away at it. And uh, then when they get back and, you know, they're settling in, Coach goes, all right, let's, let's have a cool-down run. Well, you know, when I played football, cool-down meant take a knee, get a little Gatorade. If you're a cross-country runner, that's not how you cool down. You know how you cool down? You do a short run. Now we're just going to run a little more. I'm like, wait a minute. We just ran. That doesn't make any sense to me. That's why I'm not into cross-country, because if cool-down means running more, it doesn't seem like you're cooling down. But cross-country guys get it all the time. They're like, oh, yeah, we're cool. I'm like, hey, where are you going? I've got to go cool down. I've got to run a mile, cool down. Run a mile and cool down. That's crazy. You know, well, that's the word that's used here by Paul is continuous, strenuous, sustainable effort in your Christian faith. You know what you're supposed to do? Passionately pursue some changes that will make you grow up. Seek God and say, God, what do I need to do to change and grow up? How can I change to improve myself? What, what character stuff in me do you need to just eliminate? And what... What spiritual values do I need to enhance? Do I need to be a better prayer? Yes, Lord, I know I'm struggling with my prayer life. So can you help me this week be better at that than last week? Say, I'm pursuing. Now, some of that's real basic stuff. You know how you do it? You just ask in the, in the church family. You ask a good church family like this. Hey, how do you do this? How, how come your prayer life seems better than mine? You seem to have this all together, and I don't. How come you never seem stressed? If you're having stress issues... How come you go to somebody that seems calm all the time? You go, how come you never seem stressed? Can you just talk me through that? If that doesn't make sense to you, you go to another person like that. If, if everybody in the church is stressed, then you're in trouble. But, if, uh, but then you can go. There's some great Christian books. I have, a, I have an office full of books, and a bunch of you all know that because I, I loan them out to you all the time. Um, by the way, bring them back. Um, <laughs> but I'm just saying there's great writings um, that will help you understand grace and and, and how to deal with depression or stress or anxiety, how to deal with relationships and uh, brokenness and, and wounded spirits and abuse. There's books on everything out there written by great authors. And you know what you do? You read those books so you grow and mature and change, so you begin to process life, life differently. And what I'm saying to you is I don't want any of us to become uh, immature old saints at Northside. I never want that to be a part of our church. We have to be mature 
You know, when I get to be 80 years old and I'm sitting out there watching, you know, somebody lead church and Brandon preach or teach or whatever he's going to do. And, you know, the next generation that's behind him be leading and preaching and doing all that. You know, he'll have a, a group up here doing that. When I'm watching them, I don't want to be sitting there getting bitter because I'm so immature because I never pursued change for my life. I just get bitter and go, oh, stupid young kids. I don't know what they're wrong with them. You know, they're so stupid. They don't know what they're doing. You know, I don't want that. I want to sit out there and go, yes, God, you're doing such a great job in their lives, and I'm trying to change and grow myself, and that song's really weird. But okay, we'll worship you with it anyway. Let's just worship. Let's listen to the words and go kind of thing. You know, I want to tune in, and I don't want my life to, to not continue to mature. All of our lives, when you're 80 years old, 80 years old, you're supposed to pursue change. You're supposed to grow and mature. You don't ever get set in your spiritual ways. And uh, we're supposed to do it passionately. We're supposed to do it continuously with strenuous effort. You say, well, that sounds like a lot of work. Hence the word Paul says, work out your own salvation. Yes. Now, when we get to heaven, it's all taken care of. Rest, peace, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering. But Jesus says, while you're here on earth, Seek after me. Keep on seeking. Paul says, while you're here, keep on working at your salvation. Grow up in your faith. Now, maturity takes time, and it takes work, hard work. It's not going to happen naturally. It's going to happen when you take effort to it. Amen?